You're listening to the Tuna Town Talks Fishing Podcast with Captain Paul Miller. Hello everyone, and thanks for listening. I'm a full-time charter captain based out of Ennis, Louisiana, and over the years I've seen some of the most incredible things, and some of my friends have told me some of the most unbelievable stories, so much to where I decided I would like to start a podcast. And now a word from our title sponsor, Blue Wave Boats. Blue Wave has been the number one selling bay boat along the Gulf Coast for many years now. And with over 50 square miles of marsh located out of Venice, Louisiana, it is essential that I choose the right boat to put my clients on fish. For the last four to five years, I've been using a 24-foot bay boat powered with a single 300 Suzuki, and it's been an amazing boat. However, over the years, I've also learned that I like to target a lot of different species that are near shore, so having a bigger boat with more power could help with that, which is why I've decided to move to a 26 Pier Bay powered with twin 200 Suzukis, and this has been the perfect size boat for being able to target multiple different species, especially because the boat has over four live wheels in it, which allows me to use multiple different baits to target multiple different species. With the flush mounted seating, I'm also able to maintain ample fishability, all while still providing a comfortable ride for my clients. With the step toll technology, I'm able to be more fuel efficient at higher speeds, which is also a huge advantage when making long runs through the marsh. If you would like to purchase a Blue Wave boat, head on over to bluewaveboats.com where you can find your local dealer. One of my favorite things to eat while out on the water is either beef jerky or snack sticks. And my favorite place to get this is bourgeoismeatmarket.com. That's right, guys. This is some really good stuff. They don't use any nitrates or preservatives. It comes from one of the oldest meat markets in the world with over 130 years in existence and their fourth generation taking over now. I really want to get the word out about their product and how easy it is to go on their website, order what you want, and leave it on your boat. So go to bourgeoismeatmarket.com and use code TUNATOWNTALKS in all capital letters to get 10% off your order. That's right, guys. Go to bourgeoismeatmarket.com and use code TUNATOWNTALKS in all capital letters to get 10% off your order. That's bourgeoismeatmarket.com. B-O-U-R-G-E-O-I-S meatmarket.com. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode. I'm I'm here today with um, a new friend of mine. Um, his name is Rudy Hall, and uh, kind of got acquainted through you through Harold. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he said you guys met out at the islands one time and um, wade fishing, and uh, he said he said uh, I quickly learned that you would definitely be somebody I would like to talk to. <laughs> so uh, here we are today. He's invited me up to his home and. Um, uh, I, dro- I had the day off in Venice, so I, I drove up to uh, have a conversation. But um, uh, Rudy, I guess we'll just start like I do most of these podcasts. Is like, where where did you um, where did you grow up, and where did you get your passion for fishing? When did you start fishing? Uh, I grew up in New Orleans. Um, passion was pretty early. Uh, my uncle and grandfather were big fishermen, and uh, they would go out almost every weekend between May and October, weather permitting. Um, And so from a small kid around eight or nine, I was always interested in going, but they told me I couldn't go with them until I was 12. So (laughs) I had to sit and wait until I was 12 years old. So that was back in 1962 was the first time I went fishing with them. Wow. And uh, it's 
it's probably a very unique experience because uh, uh, while they started out fishing for bass and they did fish in the marsh quite a bit, by that time uh, they were pretty adventurous and uh, they would try to get out to the, the islands, uh, Chandelier Sound, Britain Sound area, mm-hmm. as uh, frequently as they could. And back then it was it was quite an adventure because you were going out in an 18 foot boat with an 80 horsepower motor, <laughs> and uh, there was no uh, we didn't even have a VHF radio on the boat when we went out there, so it was pretty. pretty a lot less boat traffic back then too. Yeah, and only about enough gas to get out and uh, and get back, and we did primarily mostly wade fishing. Really, and so uh, it was it was pretty exciting. The fishing was uh, phenomenal. Um, back then, when you crossed the sound, and we would go from Hopedale through Bayalutra out to Point Chico, which is an island that's no longer there, and wait to see if the weather was good before heading out. <laughs> uh, typically, would pass by uh, the central area. With when central when, rig, when was Central put out there? I mean, you're talking 1962. Back, so back I mean. in 62, all they had out there were wellheads, and they had the flow pipe rig. You know, everybody fishes the flow pipe at Central. Mm-hmm. Well, that platform's been out there since 62, and they didn't have the big concrete-supported platforms where oh, all the really? facilities. All they had was two barges. One barge was moored next to the riser platform with production equipment. And the other barge was next to it, and the oil that they separated, they pumped into the 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 barge that was just a bare barge, and they swapped that barge out probably every couple of weeks to bring the oil in. So there was no pipelines ashore back then. Wow! So they would actually have to. So so for our listeners, like now, all the all the oil from offshore is mostly pumped in, right? Yeah, by pipeline. By pipeline. Yeah. And, and then back then, they would offload it onto barges, and then they didn't have the the pipeline infrastructure in back then. Wow. And the gas was just flared. So um, although they still have a, a flare there that sometimes goes off, I guess it goes off. Uh, back then, it was continually flared. So the the flare you could see for. 20 miles away, 30 miles away, it just lit up the sky. It was crazy. <laughs> Big one, huh? Yeah, you couldn't get near it because of the heat. Wow, wow. Uh, occasionally, we would stop and uh, fish around a barge. The fishing there wasn't, uh, I didn't, I would say back then, we didn't spend a lot of time at fishing the, the platforms. We went straight to the, the islands, mm-hmm. mostly wade fishing. Um what kind of stuff did you guys use whenever, you, like, what kind of lures and stuff did you guys well, use? Well, that's that's an interesting story, too. Back then, uh, we were using uh, bait casting reels and Bastar 6000s. Yeah, the OG. <laughs> the, yeah, pretty old. It was one of the first uh, bait casting reels with uh, centrifugal brakes on it. Mm-hmm. So it was a major step up from the earlier bait casting reels. 15 pound mono. Uh, we were using Browning Soliflex rods, which were pretty expensive rods back then, kind of like the G. Loomis of the day. Right, right. And uh, um, the, the lure was pretty simple. It was a three-quarter ounce Mr. Champ with a yellow bucktail, and that was it. <laughs> that was it? That's all you used? That's all we used. Uh, plastics were not really out quite yet. 
Yeah. What the, about like any top water baits? Did, uh, I, I've heard of like balsa wood and stuff. Like well, um, Marilua had some. The, the 52 was back then. They still had some Marilua's out. Uh, white with a red head was pretty popular back then for some of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather liked to fool with the with the plugs, the hard plastic. The hard know. plastic plugs. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and back then. Uh, Rappler was just coming out with in this country, so there were some of those uh, balsa wood baits back then that were used that were pretty popular too. Right, right. Um, but it was uh, we kept it pretty simple. Um, <laughs> but the fishing, you know, is phenomenal. You you'd go out there. We didn't really fish for numbers. We were more interested in the size of the fish, and so you, even back then, wow. Well, well. Yeah, we were. We were catching on a regular trip, you know, five pound fish, three to four, five pounds, six, right. occasionally bigger. Wow. But every trip you would have a, maybe a, a half a dozen five pound trout. Wow. And was there many other people out there? Like, do you remember seeing other people out there? When they, there, there were a few people. Back then, believe it or not, uh, there used to be a... a guys that would fly out oh really and uh, the islands were much larger um Gosha was bigger and longer than curlew is today it had mangroves on it um the inside the sound side had grass flats wow. there was a coast guard station building that was abandoned that was out there for the war that's crazy that they were uh trying to watch for submarines off the coast and stuff Really, and when 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 did that go away? Uh, most of that, uh, all of that went away in Camille. In Camille, okay. Yeah, that was in the late sixties. Camille hit, which was a major storm on on the east side of the river. Yeah. And but, for for people that are listening, um, Gosher's, I, I guess last year was completely gone, and this year it's kind of built back a little bit. And there's, yeah, there's somewhat of a sandbar there, but it's nothing. Like it's, you described it, right it, now. Well, it's nothing like it was. Yeah. And, you know, and even back in, uh, I guess, in the 90s and that, uh, Gosha had a cove just like Britain has today. Really? It was a complete cove. In fact, it was almost closed in. It's, yeah, that was back in the in the, six, uh, in the 90s, I guess it was. That wow. was pretty interesting times. And then, so I fished there until I went off to college, and well, actually, until I graduated from college in '72. What did uh, you go to college for? Engineering. I went engineering. Started with LSU, and then went to Georgia Tech for a master's. Came back and uh, went to work for a company, Petromarine, that did offshore platforms. Mm-hmm. And then, for about a 50-year career, worked on the design of offshore oil and gas platforms, and then. Later in my years, uh, worked on uh, the first uh, uh, wind farm projects. Off really? Of, well, yeah, we, my company designed the first wind farms installed in the United States offshore. And where were, where were those put out at? That was put in Block Island in Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, yeah, I've heard about those. Yeah, and they still have pictures of that every time in the newspaper. I, to this day, um, there's not been very many other offshore projects installed in the States yet. Right. That project's going slow. And um, were you part of um, a lot of the uh, nearshore 
oil platforms that are off yeah the we did today? we did nearshore uh we did water treating we did projects in black bay projects in bay elwa we did the uh water treating disposal for the central field in britain sound and uh, it's the more recent platforms we had designed those platforms i my firm was a design firm and could you tell us maybe how, how exactly, like, because, you know, do you, have you or have you ever done any work in, like, East Bay? Uh, yeah, we did the water uh, uh, disposal project in East Bay, too. Okay. But a lot of those, how, how long are some of those, I mean, like you said, that Central has, I'm trying to figure out how, how long all these have actually been there. Well, Shell developed the East Bay rigs probably early development was in uh, the probably the 50s in the 50s okay yeah early early 60s I would say and then uh, like in on the west side the Bay Marchand rigs by uh, off of Grand Island at that was all Chevron rigs and that was developed around the same time all the major oil companies all had areas in Louisiana that they developed Texaco was more to the west. Uh, Exxon, they had they had developed several fields. And and how do these uh, like in East Bay particularly? Because I'm in there a, a lot from time to time. Um, and I mean, I, I in Breton Sound, I'm in there. But like, you see a bunch of these little wellheads. They're they're somewhat smaller. Yeah. How, how do how do they work? Like, do you do they? Are those all natural gas wells? And well, some of them were oil wells back then, uh, and gas. Well, normally hydrocarbons come up typically uh, in mixtures. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's primarily a gas well, it may have what's called condensate, which is a very light in hydrocarbon. If it's an oil well, it'll be more heavy uh, hydrocarbon and less gas. Okay. Um, by when I say heavier or light, it's, it depends. Hydrocarbons are just uh, hydrogen and carbon atoms, and so the number of atom uh, bonds of hydrogen and carbon uh, make the different types of hydrocarbons. Methane, which is the lightest gas, is just uh, the minimum amount of, of hydrocarbon uh, gotcha. bonds. And so when they extract these, they're extracted and then pumped to a bigger rig and then pumped ashore? Well, or how does typi- that typically work? it comes up in a mixture of oil, gas, and water. Right. So you basically want to sep- you put it into a big tank, which they are called separators, either vertical or horizontal. So and, those are the ones that we see uh, with the big tanks yeah, on Right. Gotcha. And, and the oil is separated uh, from the gas. And then the oil and and water, which is separate, the liquids, or it then goes to another separation process. And they may use uh, other methods, either heat or uh, sometimes an electric process to separate the water from the oil. And then the, the water, once it's separated, has to go through a scrubbing process to get all the oil particles out before you can dispose of it. Mm-hmm. And originally in state waters, they allowed the oil the producers to dispose the water and then they passed a law uh, that restricted disposal of water and they required them to take the produced water and inject it back into the formations into the ground into the ground so that required even additional refinement of the of the removal of the wow 
of the of the oil and that and then you had to worry about removing solids any kind of sand particles that might have came up in the production that had to be removed so you could have the water as clean as possible to pump back down wow you think that was a good thing well sure it, it reduced the amount of potential pollution in, in the area and so right yeah, that was it's just gotten better over time right? yeah and they also the feds offshore tighten up the regulation on how much i mean particles per million of oil you can have in a discharge hmm. of water in, into the sea so yeah I, I do think that helped a lot and so like now with a lot of these near shore rigs what happens like i guess they they extract all they can from that well or the well gets too old and then they get rid of it or how does yeah um a, a lot of them the state has has not as stringent rules as the federal government the federal government requires an oil company once they take on a lease to escrow money for the removal of the platform and so they have to keep money in an escrow file so they can remove the platform. And even if they sell the field to another producer, the original owner is still re responsible for the disposal mm. of the plat removal of the platform. So once they get everything they can out of it, then they have to remove it. Yeah. And, and a lot of times that falls back in federal wars, that falls back to the original owner. Like it may have gone through, you know, the original owner might have been Exxon, for example, and then they made a sold to another company, another independent oil company, and then that independent oil company sold to another one. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Exxon's still going to be responsible for removal. Mm, I see what you're saying. No. Because they, what they're worried about, the reason why they're selling off is that the smaller developers may not have the financial way at all. They get the oil out. Mm -hmm. and you know they would just leave the platform there to corrode away and so that's that's why they would go back to the original owner gotcha hmm. and is is it still financially feasible for for them to keep developing inshore because you don't see a whole lot of new, like new inshore platforms um every once in a while you'll see a new one well a lot of the areas have been developed but you know, there's always a potential of going deeper in the formations, you know, mm -hmm. and looking for deeper down into the formations for production. Mm -hmm. um, there's some uh, theories that there's lots of gas to be produced in very deep drilling, but that's very complicated because the deeper you go, the the hotter the production is, the more difficult it is to drill, the more difficult it is to produce. Right. But I've also heard the theory that they're so much better at doing it way offshore now that the in the, the the inshore has a lot more liabilities at stake, that they're not doing as much inshore. Is that true or not the case? No, it's probably the offshore. The deeper water wells are just further out, and there have been pretty huge fields been developed offshore. I mean, when... East Bay was first developed. That was a huge field. Same with Bay Marchand. Those were huge, huge developments. Mm -hmm. So as those got depleted, they just looked further offshore for bigger reservoirs, and that's where some of the deep water platforms you see yeah. out there now. Yeah, that's where they're finding a bunch more, right? Right. Gotcha. But those are way more expensive to develop. Mm. They'd love to find a, a lot of production in close because developing 100 feet of water or 50 feet of water or 20 feet of water is a lot it's a lot easier huh? a lot easier and a lot, a lot less cheaper, expen huh? <laughs> expensive for the development 
so the return on your investment is a lot quicker wow and so whenever you you were working and you were like actually designing the the uh the rigs itself to withstand all the hurricanes yeah we the companies i work for include my own company we design platforms uh production facilities those types of things quarters buildings helidecks Mm. all kind of stuff where what were some of the rigs that you were like a big part of would there be any like uh Mm. it's man i I probably not go into that because (laughs) but you know some of the platforms were just just by block name you know yeah yeah yeah, you, know, you just have a block name. Before you well, a lot of the fishermen know block names, but I understand. You yeah, wouldn't yeah. but that. I mean, there, there were quite a few, few platforms. I, yeah. I was probably the engineer record on several hundred. Yeah. Well, I guess back more towards the the fishing. You you uh, whenever you got out of college, I mean, did you fish through college, or did did you kind of put it on hold a little bit? No, fish fish as much as I could I mean obviously when I was in Georgia I wasn't doing much fishing (laughs) played a lot of golf in between classes but uh, when I was able to come back down here either fished or went went duck hunting in Venice yeah duck hunting oh you like duck hunting too oh yeah we did a lot of duck hunting in Venice did that back in the early 60s that was more my dad's speed he liked to duck hunt and uh, back then there were the wildlife fisheries had camps down in the Pasalutra area. It wasn't really open to general hunting. It was all by a lottery, and you had to get a lottery. There were camps that housed eight people, eight hunters. You'd drive down to Venice on a mm-hmm. Friday morning. Uh, if you were picked that pat, you know, you get picked on, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday, they would pick names at the Wildlife and Fisheries headquarters of the people that got names drawn, you would go down there and they'd take you in boats. They had like two or three boats that would take you to these camps, drop you off. (laughs) You'd bring your food, your gun, your shells. The wildlife uh, and fisheries provided the camp. Uh, It had bare essentials like uh, cistern water, which was cold, so it wasn't very comfortable to take a a shower out there. (laughs) Uh, They had some, uh, I guess, propane few um and uh they had a couple of duck boats yeah. they had four duck boats two men two men to a duck boat and back then it'd give you about uh a dozen decoys per duck boat so that's all you had to go hunt but the hunting was so good you didn't need very many duck you know you just <laughs> you, didn't need much, you huh? just paddle out from around the camp you know you just paddle away from the camp they were down on Dennis Pass and Loomis <laughs> Pass and places like that and Cadro Pass and you'd you know paddle a few hundred yards a thousand yards away from the camp and pull into the canes throw out your dozen decoys and shoot a limited ducks it was pretty easy yeah it's a lot more of a production now and then uh, the, they got they got destroyed and in Betsy and then they rebuilt them even better and then they got destroyed in in uh, Camille and then they decided they weren't going to rebuild the camps and then they opened it up to to the general public to go down there so then it became a wildlife management area that was open to hunting right to Pasalutra and then in the 80s the federal 
government opened up the De- Delta area mm. in the early 80s. It used to be protected? Uh, that was originally uh, the Perez's and that I think had a, uh, a hunting camp down there. It was private land. Then the federal government owned it and uh, they managed it. And um, they about 1980 or so, it, it became, you could go out there and, and hunt it. When um, you, uh, like, I guess whenever you got out of college and you, you were still wanting to fish and everything, what, did, what kind of boat did you get? What was your first boat that you? Uh, when I got out of college, I bought a small uh, um, tri-hull with a 100 horsepower motor on it. And back then, we were fishing close. We hadn't been, I hadn't been out to the islands since uh, uh, I had fished with my uncle and grandfather. So by uh, 73, 74, uh, I was working and had a small boat raising a family. And my, my son was born in 74, Michael. And so uh, we fished, I fished with my cousin back then a lot, Kenny Benora, and uh, we fished a lot um, in Bay Elwha and out of Hopedale. Just trout okay. fishing, mostly with uh, live shrimp, popping cork. Uh, so even though I started with artificial at a very young age, kind of at that period of time went to uh, went to live bait. Live bait <laughs> and would go out on a. You know, I lived. We lived in New Orleans East, and so it was a pretty quick ride down to. Hopedale to go out there, yeah. and uh, we go out and catch a hundred trout and be back by eleven o'clock. <laughs> you know, to so what, do, would you know who like how the the popping cork came around? Because I mean that's something that's widely used all over. The popping cork goes way back. My grandfather talked about bolts of popping corks fishing with with, with a Calcutta cane pole. Really, <laughs> and. Um, he fished Hopedale his whole life, and he had a friend that had a camp. If from I don't know if you've been down to Hopedale, but it, there's a bridge where you go across to go to Hopedale and Shell Beach that mm-hmm. crosses by Lutra, or by Wyclosky, I guess by Lutra there. And uh, his friend had a camp there, and they would go down on a Friday, and they'd go take an oyster lugger out and drag a bunch of small uh, rowboats behind him. Really? Yeah, and uh, all they would fish with would be uh, dead shrimp, a popping cork on a cane pole. <laughs> and Wear them out. Huh? And wear them out, come <laughs> back. they stay on, they, they'd sleep on the oyster lugger uh, Friday Friday night and, uh, and Saturday night. And then they'd come back Sunday morning and the wives would drive down and fix the meal and they'd be waiting for them and they'd eat a big <laughs> meal and go home. Wow. And that was, the, that was the old way. That was probably in the 20s and 30s. Really? Yeah, 1930s wow. and that. I'd love to hear some of those boy. stories, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From way yeah, back then. They, they talk about weird. all kinds of stories like that. That's crazy. I mean, think about it. You go out and you go rowing. Yeah, you're going to go row. They're, they're going out. And they had no motor. No motor, just rowing. Just rowing. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. My my younger brother, he's 
he's recently built a sailboat and he's you know, he's he's probably the realest hippie that I know but he he had it in his he has it in his mind he he actually built uh there's no motor on his boat and he he built 14 foot long oars and uh going out with him and you actually hear about uh uh I don't know if you know who Peter Anderson is but he's uh, uh he used to be an art he's, he's since passed but he's an artist um on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and he writes about rowing out to Horn Island and everything and going out on my brother's boat with oars and you know you have to pay attention a lot more you have yeah. to pay attention to the tides and the wind and all that stuff you can't just go at any given time you know if the tide's not going to be moving right you have to come in with the tide you have to leave with the tide and there's that whole aspect to it that puts you more into the moment and like you have to pay attention a lot more right. to everything and uh it's a lot of fun man i know everybody calls him calls him crazy for doing it and everything like that but after i went with him and did it i was like i get it <laughs> yeah uh, my mother's family uh had a house in back bay Biloxi that they would go to in the summers mm -hmm. and her, her grandmother and grandfather would go there with the kids they would take my mother and uh, and a brother, the uncle that used to take us fishing, and the cousins and all, and they had sailboats and that. That's how they got around, mm -hmm. sailed out. You know, it's cool, man. It's it crazy times, <laughs> different times. I just can't imagine like going out. I guess going out fishing, and we're gonna be in a rowboat. Everybody's gonna row, and then we got a cane pole. <laughs> you know, I fish a lot with Calcutta poles now. Like I have specific holders on my boat that that keep the Calcutta poles on it, and it's funny when people get on the boat they're like man what are you going to do with that you know and I'm like we're going to catch some fish is what we're going to do <laughs> well that, that technique's a pretty old technique but I think popping cocks go back at least to the 30s I would imagine really that's crazy I've always wondered that because I mean I, I, you know you don't you don't you, I mean everybody uses popping corks now I mean it seems yeah. to be one of the more effective ways and a lot of people choose not to just because it's too easy <laughs> you know yeah. You get the guys that, you know, move on to trying to make it harder. And I guess in a lot of ways, that's that's why I say I like the cane poles because it's kind of like fly fishing in that it's a little bit harder, but it's not quite as, I don't know, the, I don't feel like I tire out the fish as much. You know, you get them. <laughs> it's quick. Yeah, quick. My, uh, my cousin Kenny, he was probably the best uh, popping caught fisherman I've ever fished with. He was so smooth, setting the hook and everything. He didn't miss. <laughs> he was he was like a machine no. on those on those trout. You get on a good trout bike, and he was. That is a little one, different hook set. One, one, court, sure. one after the other. He just had a, a slow technique of how he would set the hook in. He was mm -hmm. very 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 effective. No. Well, um, well, I guess whenever you got that boat, um, I mean, when did you start going back out to the islands? Because you said you. Kind of stayed in closer. Uh, probably in '88 when I moved over here in the North Shore. Okay. When I moved from New Orleans East and came over here in the North Shore, then I met people that were going out to the islands. I had a neighbor that had a boat that went out to to the islands. Uh, I met John Maurice. Uh, I fished with him a lot in the last years, 30 plus years, and uh, started going going out there. He had a little get together you call the Britain Island Blast and we'd go out there uh, we've still doing it it's like 34 years or 35 years now that would be really yeah a bunch, cool. bunch of guys we'd go out and fish 
in the early days, we used to camp on the island. And then uh, they used to have a, the island of Barge in Britain Island. We stayed on, on, the, on the islander for years. And since then, we kind of migrated back to Venice, and we stay in Venice. But still the same group of guys that have been doing it for 30-plus years. Wow, that's awesome to get those games. I bet you look forward to that a lot. Every yeah, it's, it's usually it's the weekend right after Memorial Day every year we've been doing so like that. uh like first week of june yeah something like that yeah that's yeah. awesome <laughs> yeah it's it's been a lot of fun uh, that's super cool and um like how much has the pressure increased was there a lot of people doing it in the 80s like that no um well throughout this period you know from the 60s i a duck hunt in Venice, and we would always, when we were duck hunting, we would we'd camp camp down there in the passes and that, and fish. And I would say that it was not to probably the the nineties that the speckled trout fishery was really identified to and where people would come here. There, to were, speckled yeah, trout there was fish. there were very few guides. Actually, I guess. Uh, in the early years, Mike Furnett was one of the more first offshore guides, and he did some red fishing. Um, and uh, Ronnie Grenier was a really uh, old salt down there doing uh, trout and redfish. And uh, there wasn't very many other people down there. There was no no ability for live bait, so it was all artificial. Uh, fishing the canes with artificial was really difficult unless you're doing top water or something like that because all the stubbles and that makes it right. kind of difficult. Right, yeah. right. Cane fishing with Pop McCork and live bait is pretty easy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but uh, with some of your artificials, it's not quite as easy. Yeah. Um, but I would say it really exploded in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. Then uh, the big trout came in Ed Sexton uh, had a phenomenal catch that was published in you know, 2002 or somewhere around there. You know, he never did say where he caught it, but it, of course it was at South Pass. And uh, where? Uh, what, what, what was the catch? I mean, was it? Oh, they had two 10-pound trout and wow. uh, a huge string of trout, and, and uh, it it was quite a. a first time I think people realized how big the trout were in Venice and then shortly after that uh, Joe Horace who worked for the LSU Ag Group uh, came up and with this idea of doing um, trout watches to catch uh, large trout because they didn't have much though there was not much uh, data on large trout mm-hmm. and this is 25 inch and larger so he invited a bunch of fishermen. He said, if you thought you were a trophy trout fisherman, he invited you up to Baton Rouge, told you, showed you how to cut the olets out, and gave you a bunch of kits where you could do it yourself. Do the, put the olets in a, a little uh, bottle and send it into them so they could age the fish. And uh, I guess we c- collected about 250 over a two-year period. Wow. And uh, uh, the thing that surprised everybody was how fast the fish grew in the eastern area, particularly like in in uh, uh, 
Bettis. Bettis, yeah. And I guess uh, Terry St. Cyr, Ed Saxon, and myself probably, probably caught about over 100 trophy trout in that period. And when you say trophy trout, what size are we talk? 25 and over. 25 inches and over. Yeah. Wow. That That's a lot of big trout, man. Yeah. I, I, if I'm, I'm, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think. Uh, Is that live bait in? in well, Terry was a live bait fisherman. He fished a lot of live bait, uh, particularly live croaker. I think, I don't know, you'd have to ask Ed Sexton what he was fishing with back then, but I think he fished plastics and, and live bait. Uh, uh, I fished live bait and plastics back then, too. So it, it was a, a, a mixture. A mixture, yeah. And, uh, but it was interesting. It, I mean, they, nobody, everybody was surprised because everybody was talking about Big Lake and the trout over there how fast do they grow like how fa how how old is a trout over well, some of those 25 inch trout were only three years old three years old yeah that's pretty quick that's real quick yeah <laughs> i mean that's i mean that's extraordinary yeah about. yeah that's really fast but that was because back then i think the estuary was an extremely healthy the amount of food there was unbelievable now that got really uh devastated after Katrina it still was fantastic after but, Katrina but but do you say that they don't grow as fast anymore oh I don't, I'm not saying that I do, I do think they grow fast yeah I, I think they still grow fast yeah because like a 10 year old trout is like an ancient right yeah I don't I that they, they were 10 year old they may have been some 10 year old trout in Big Lake mm -hmm. but uh, that's an entirely different estuary and yeah. fished entirely differently mm-hmm but that was that was kind of early days. What were some of the older ones? Do you remember that you guys had collected of those trophy trout you just talked about? No, most of our trout were. Uh, I don't think we had any. I, I don't. I don't think I caught any less than over five years old, probably. Wow. They were all, you know, three to five. Wow, that's crazy. And most of the fish that we've caught. You know that I I turned in were caught in Britain Sound or South Bass area. Um, I suspect Terry was catching Grand Isle. He may have been doing the West Side like uh, Burwood, those areas as well as South Pass. Um, and obviously, uh, Ed probably was fishing South Pass mostly. Yeah, you still fish South Pass much? Yeah, but I I don't. I don't particularly like to fish South Pass. I mean, we fished South Pass in the early 2000s, and uh, I fished it a time or two when I, we were fishing with a tournament or something. Uh, back in the in the early 2000s, we were fishing it with lights at night. Really? Yeah. We, what do you mean? You would bring your own lights out there? Yeah, with a generator, fishing at night. That really? was pretty popular back then. We used to fish... Holy Cross and Central at night with lights. Um, South Pass. <laughs> so you you'd bring like a bunch of lights on your boat with a generator. Well, just typically just two big, four hundred watt uh, sodium vapor light sodium lights with a with the generator. <laughs> and you would just throw plastics or whatever. 
A lot of times it was plastics. A lot of times you throw live bait. Sometimes you get ballyhoo, which you net and use those as live bait. That was like candy to this big trout. You don't see, you know, I used to fish. I used to fish a lot at night. Now, I don't know if people still do it, but I feel like it's become like less prevalent. I just don't see many people going out to go fish at night anymore around here. Yeah, well, it's a it's a young man's game. I mean, we we stopped yeah, doing it when we, as we got when we got older. We stopped going out at night. That was <laughs> you know staying up to all night long. Yeah, that, wear you out. That was a long ride back. So yeah. by the time you got to around fifty-ish, you know, you were in. Yeah. We were in our 50s doing it, so, you know, by the time we got to 60, we said, no, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> what made you uh, want to, like, not fish South Pass so much? Is it just kind of the erosion of that place? And Well, it, it changed a lot, you know. Um, early on, when we used to go hunting down there, in the early days, there was a concrete um, jetty wall then you you could go it was like a seawall they call it right? yeah it was like a seawall and you could you could tie your boat off on the inside they'd have the little uh rebar loops where they used to pick up the seawall to install it they were still there and you could take your rope pass it through. T- pass it through and tie off right to the side of the seawall go up walk up and down the seawall <laughs> but most of the times when we were fishing it we were catching uh, redfish big white trout two three pound white trout and big big croakers two or three pound croakers wow. which was what was the favorite fish because <laughs> the croaker was the best tasting fish of them all <laughs> and uh we caught very 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 few speckled trout really in those days when the wall collapsed after i guess it must have been i don't know exactly what hurricane the wall actually collapsed and then they came back with with uh, rock and the water started flowing through the rock and stuff like that it was mixing the fresh water and salt water I think better and that just created a a perfect environment for the trout to come in Mm. they'd come in and spawn in the you know in the salty water on the gulf side and then the mixing with the fresh water made a perfect brackish water for the once the eggs hatched it was a perfect environment hmm. that's interesting I, that, at least that's my theory I don't know I'm not a, I'm not a marine biologist but I think that ha- and then as time went on you know the the, the rock jetties and that all kind of settled, settled in and so you don't have that same mixing so I don't think you get quite the same concentration of big trout there that you once did but in 1973 I mean in not 19, in 2003 yeah. That was a pretty hot place. Right before Katrina, huh? Right before Katrina. That was really a... Everybody talks about how, how good the trout fishing was just right before Katrina had happened. <laughs> well, it was it was good all over. I mean, yeah, you it was had... Yeah, everywhere, right? Paso Lutra had like a, a a lagoon on the, on the, I guess you would say the north side of the pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was almost completely enclosed and the trout would get in there and you'd go in there and they'd be like, eight boats fishing in there. Wow. Everybody catching trout at different times of the year. That sounds like the perfect scenario for and, trout. <laughs> and then you had, you know, they used to call the Pasolutra mud lumps. And um, it was just... Did you fish on. the mud lumps a lot? 
the mud lumps, the, the, you know, the original mud lumps were at uh, where Coast Guard Cut is. And uh, those were developed by gas pockets and shallow gas bubbling up and causing the sand to move around and create these mounds of sand. Yeah. It, it's a, a geological process, and a similar process occurred off of Pasalucha for a time. As the gas depleted in that, you don't have the mud lumps anymore, and you still have the sand. So it was caused because of the drilling? No, 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 no. No, no. no this is just a natural process. It's just a natural thing. Yeah. And they just don't happen anymore because... Well, it's it's that, that natural seepage, just that whatever it was there, that shallow deposit of gas just depleted. And so there's nothing there to cause it to happen anymore. Hmm. So the lumps... Don't, but the lumps used to move around every year. They were at different locations every year. Really? Yeah. It was an interesting process. It, I had a biologist once describe to me that it's almost like you pushing your hand through through mud, and like a, the, the mud would come, you know, it would come through your fingers. It's kind of like yeah. the same concept. It's like it's pushing, the ground's pushing, and there's soft mud underneath. And then they, how tall were these mud lumps? I mean, they come They come out the water. ground two, three feet. Really? Yeah. That's they cool. move around. You fished them? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good fish. Um, the redfish liked that area a lot back then. That's super cool. Interesting. It, it definitely is. When did you start fishing? I mean, like, I take it that you fish rigs for speckled trout a lot. Do you, when did you start doing that or discover you know, that the speckled trout were holding on? Well, we've always fished the rigs. I mean, even even back in the 70s and that we were fishing the rigs the shallow really? water rigs you know the small wellheads and stuff like that uh most of these shallow water rigs when they were originally installed they used to use um, a clamshell from lake punch and train as a a mat it would create a mat for the drilling rig to come on and sit on the clam clamshells really why would they use clamshells why, because why? it was cheap and they could dredge it out of lake uh, like punch and train and hmm. they, they used that for years um, and it made like hard bottoms all over so those were excellent trout habitat really but um, they they recognized that that was causing a lot of turbidity in, in like punch and train and so they put an end to that hmm. and then they they, they went to uh, limestone so a lot of the wellheads or the early wellheads that had shell, those those shells are washed away from the hurricanes and that through the years. Mm-hmm. And the ones that more recent that have used limestone, those are still pretty good fishing spots. And a lot of people, places where people go now, little wellheads that have hard bottom, those are those are the best ones. Yeah, like the yellow rig out by uh, Britain. That's hard bottom. That's the first one that I thought of whenever you said that. Yeah, <laughs> but that was more recent rig, and that's all limestone. How long, how long ago was that rig put out there? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, that wasn't that rig's not that old. Really? Yeah. The thing seems to be like the midnight lump of speckled trout. <laughs> well, it's it's because it's it's got like it's each one of those little wellheads have a pad. Is that limestone or? Yeah, it's a crushed limestone that makes a a pretty good fish attractor. Wow, I wonder yeah. if one of them thought that because it they, when they build these rigs, they're not thinking about fish at all. It's just like they no. They, the only reason why they have limestone there is because they they were legally couldn't use a clamshell. Hmm. 
The clamshell was cheaper. It was coming from Lake Punch Train. Lumps only has to come from upriver, and that it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not that, readily yeah. available in Louisiana. Right, they got to get it somewhere else. Yeah, so it's it's more expensive, just yeah. transportation costs alone. Yeah. But that's what that's what all the the oyster fishermen are using now is is crushed limestone. You see them right now; they're going out and putting crushed limestone down, so that the oysters to, the oyster can... have a place to attach. Right. You know, if you go to a Hope Deal and they're going out by Lutra and out through. Uh, Half Moon going into Christmas Camp Lake, they all loaded down with limestone, dropping right. it off in their different areas. Hmm. That's crazy. Well, what kind of boat did you move to? Like after you had that? Uh, I went to a, a Procraft 21 foot, which was good enough to get out to the islands, started fishing the islands again. And uh, actually, a 19 foot Procraft, which was the first one I went to the islands with. And then uh, a 21-foot pro craft, then a Pathfinder, a 23-foot Pathfinder, and now I have a a 22-foot uh, Shearwater I fish out of. But I fish a lot with my friends. Most of them fish with 26-foot Pathfinders. My son has a 26-foot Pathfinder. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that, that size seems to be most popular now. Like, I have a 26. Seems yeah, 26 with a 300 modern hull design that's efficient. That's... yeah. So that seems to be the way it. to go. Yeah, for sure. For, for particularly fishing Britain Sound and that. Mm-hmm. Whenever you wade fish, um, has what you carry changed over time, or like what do you like to carry whenever you're wade fishing? Well, plastic. I use uh, matrix matrix shed green hornets typically. Green hornet. That's it, huh? I see you got a pile of them. <laughs> yeah, uh, those have been pretty pretty good lure since since the uh, matrix shed came out shed came out with the the design it's a very good lure i think and i've used a lot of it uh also like rapala uh, hard plastics x wraps and there's several there's twitch baits and slash baits like and, whenever you walk do you carry a net uh like what do you carry with you? Uh, typically a net and a, a basket. Uh, sometimes a, a net and a, a stringer. Okay, you use a basket instead of a stringer sometimes. Uh, probably in the last fifteen years, probably use a basket more than anything. Really? Is that because of the sharks? Uh, I have never had a problem with sharks. Really? I have never lost a fish on a stringer or in a basket to a shark. Now, I've, I've had them, when I'm wade fishing, hit the fish in the water, mm-hmm. but never on the string or basket. Now, I've chased them away. Yeah. See, that's me, too. I fight I fight for them. I feel like some people like, talk about the sharks getting them. I'm like, man, if you see the sharks, you got to fight them for it. <laughs> well, you know. You hear about a lot of guys getting taxed, like their stringers getting mauled. By yeah, sharks. but when you see a shark, all you got to do is just hit your, your bait on the water. Just slam no on, and they usually spook. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're kind of. You've never been closely to being attacked by the waiting. No. No. Never, I, 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 I have either. I've never had, uh, never had a problem with a, a ray, a stingray. I've had a friend of mine that that got really bad, stepped on one. That was bad. But I've never had that problem either. I mean, since I was very young, we were always taught to shuffle and 
Yeah, shuffle, yeah. And if you if you see a shark around, just hit the water and scare them. Yeah. That was always what we did. <laughs> Seemed to work. But I've had people tell me that, you know, they have sharks grab their stringer. Um, I have a buddy that was uh, Ron Radare. He, he had a, a blue basket that they seemed to love. I mean, we went on multiple <laughs> trips, and he had his blue basket was attacked. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was just bad luck or, or whatever. He wasn't doing anything different than anybody else. No. The only thing was blue <laughs> instead of black. Did you ever venture off into the offshore stuff much at all? Yeah, we started around that same time. We started going offshore. And when I got the Pathfinder, that was an offshore boat. It was a B-hole. Um, that was the only one Pathfinder ever made. We used to go tuna fishing with that. Uh, night fish tuna. Yeah. Used to uh, uh, live bait tuna, chunk tuna. Yeah. Uh, throw popping poppers at night watching a flying fish when the flying fish would land throw yeah, the popper it's crazy how, per, how effective that is huh? poppers at night yeah, it's crazy. yeah we I mean we used to be pretty good at that catch some scoop up some flying fish and slow control them in the morning yeah. I mean, that was like they were crazy at daybreak with a flying a live flying fish tuna would go crazy when did you start the offshore stuff <laughs> Probably in the late 90s, 2000s. With so, your son? Yeah, with my son, some, uh, with friends. We started doing that. Uh, we did SKA for a while, too. Uh, oh, really? You did the King Mackerel stuff? Yeah, we did SKA. In fact, uh, some of the guys we met with SKA, um, they were the ones that kind of showed us how to catch the hardtails with sabikis and, and uh, live bait. And stuff like that. We learned most of that from SKA fishing. That makes sense. <laughs> Interesting story. Uh, Peace Marvell was was uh, just starting out in offshore, and uh, this guy Rob Dunnigan was was really good SKA fisherman. He was looking. He and his dad was looking for somebody to take him out and show him where to catch king mackerel around Venice because there are tournaments coming up. Mm-hmm. And so my buddy. John suggested he, he hire Peace. He said Peace goes out there. He don't fish for King Mackerel, but he probably sees some sky. In probably knows that. where to find them. Yeah, well, they showed Peace how to sabiki and hardtails and, and uh, live bait, and Peace got the idea that might work good for tuna. He started doing it for tuna. <laughs> <laughs> and it caught on. A lot of people started doing it then. I mean, it's the most effective way now. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how fishing has evolved just like everything else. It's like, every, it seems like everybody learned through plastics, and then yeah. you want to catch more and better, you moved to live bait. Yeah, and then <laughs> at, at that time, too, I was doing a lot of fly fishing. I mean, I fly fish for a tuna. There's one up there, yellowfin. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, you caught a yellowfin on the fly. Huh? Oh, yeah. Wow. That's great. When did you get into fly fishing? Well, I actually was in fly fishing very early in the late 60s early so when I was in high school I got interested but the equipment wasn't very good back then yeah I mean that well, isn't that when fly fishing started to become a thing? well Joe Brooks kind of made saltwater fly fishing popular when he started coming on TV on a Sunday afternoon you mm-hmm. watch Joe Brooks catch tarpon on a fly or bonefish on a fly and, yeah 
And I was a young kid. And I said, oh, I'll go try this for a speckled trout out by the islands and see if I can catch him. So got me a little fly rod. Unfortunately, it, it was not made for salt water. <laughs> it <occurred> pretty quick. <laughs> I, I think I might have got one trip out of it before it, it messed, messed up. up, you know. When we started doing offshore for yellowfin and that, uh, my but one of my, my buddy I used to go with, uh, Richard Evans. The first trip we were on, we were at the Midnight Lump. That was before it was very popular with fishing, mm-hmm. and uh, he had he wound up having about a hundred pound yellowfin on, and his reel just exploded because they you know. Then we realized we had to get really good stuff to do stuff it. to do it. Yeah, <laughs> T-bar reels and. On that tuna right there that I'm looking at on your wall, is, was that one on the lump? or where did Yeah, that was on the lump. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. That, I don't know whether I can walk over there and reach it, but that fly hanging down there, uh-huh, I see it. that's an interesting story. That that fly had a Royal record yellowfin on it. That, a world record? Yeah. Oh, it, it broke the hook. No way. Yeah. Dang, you need a heavier hook, bro. <laughs> can you believe that dang man. It w- how big was the tuna do you know over 100 pounds it would have been a world record dang you know we fished yellowfin for a lot of time and uh, you know this is a this leader you got in your hand that's an official IGF leader so feels like 100 pounds huh? that's uh, probably or 80, 80 pound 80 pounds yeah that's an 80 pound and then this is a this is a class tippet which has to be 20 pound so that can only be 12 inches long the the bite tippet right and the class tippet has a certain length and then so what happens is when yellow fins get large and you hook them and they got hooked and this leader goes underneath if it goes underneath their sickle yeah. It, it breaks off because as soon as you get the 20 pound up against the sickle it's it's gonna break so the trick to be successful is to try to get them hooked where your your leader goes across the top and that's kind of hard to do wow man i just can't believe that that hook broke with 20 pound tests that you were using like that just seems yeah <laughs> like that shouldn't happen right yeah well <laughs> I, I it wasn't his day i guess huh? we caught a bunch of tuna through the years and and that one there was the only one that the hook broke on wow dang that's a bummer yeah, I see you got some other, I mean, you had the world record uh, redfish at one point on yeah, the fly, right? Yeah, caught that when my, my son was with me, went out fishing. Uh, and that was a line class record? Yeah, eight pound test. Eight pound test. Yeah, at the time. On fly. Yeah. Wow. How big was the redfish? You got it on your wall. 32 pounds. 32 pounds. Yeah, this was in 98. This was before people really recognized that they were world class redfishing bull reds in Louisiana. That do you, you think that that fly. was? Uh, do you think that they had all been fished out? Because you hear about that a lot. They used to be able to purse them, and then you know they they outlawed the purse Yeah. And you think they weren't there as much, and that's why people didn't fish them, or do you think that people just kind of caught on to it? Um, I don't think people recognize where they were, and mm. and they might. So you don't think that. You think they were no still- for as long as I can remember the the spawning class redfish would leave the Louisiana marsh, you know, and they would migrate across Britain Sound every 
every early early in the year February March mm-hmm. and going all the way back to the 60s you would see huge pods of redfish that turned to water bronze mm-hmm. they had so many of them just literally thousands of them and they were coming out of the marsh they had reached maturity and they were going into the into the gulf and they would every every year they still do it every year they stop at the islands on the way out yeah I see. I've seen ginormous schools of redfish that you can walk on it, like Gosher and Brett. Yeah, and then and then in the fall, they tend to. I think that's probably when they're coming in closer to spawn. They get closer to the river on low river. You know, when the river starts to drop, yeah. they get up against the canes. That's when they're most vulnerable, I think, to the pogie boats and that when they're up in that area. Yeah, and you know, fly fishing guides from South Florida come every year in oh, September yeah. and October just mm-hmm. to fish the, the bull reds off the canes yeah. off the river in the passes yeah and uh, that's interesting though because I've talked to several people that used to fish back then and, and some say that you know the bull reds weren't as prevalent as what they are now and then some people will say like I've talked to well I think there was a period of time uh, between the 60s in the 70s and 80s when they had the pole Perdone uh, craze about black and redfish, and there was a big demand, and they were purseing the redfish commercially yeah. purseing. That that really depleted the the stock. Yeah. You know, unlike trout, a redfish has to mature quite a few years and has to get to be a pretty big fish before it actually spawns yeah. and reproduces. Yeah, it takes like three or four years for that fish. Yeah, a long yeah. time. And so if you start taking out all the spawning class, people weren't fishing the spawning class. They were, they were targeting the small redfish. So the spawning class were, were pretty much unfished. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, my grandfather and uncle would turn their nose up on a 30-pound redfish to eat. They wouldn't want to take that home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So um, early on, nobody was really going after those big redfish. So... I think they were pretty healthy, but then once they started netting them, that yeah. that reduced the spawning a lot. Then that was real critical. But they came back quick when they once they figured out. What once they figured you needed to stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, the problem today is the recruitment is is being they're concerned with now, and I suspect they're not. There's more mortality there than we think about when you think about the pogie fishing, bycatch, and stuff like that on big. Bull yeah, the pogey fishing is, is uh, I mean, there was recently somebody put out some some videos of, you know, a lot of dead redfish just floating, you know, yeah. floating past everybody and everything. And, and it's hard to look at. <laughs> you know, well, is, yeah, the guys, you know, it's, uh, you know. Has the pogey fisherman always been out there, though? I mean, in the 60s, 70s? Pogey fishing's been around a while. I'm not sure it has been as... Uh, uh, effective and as as many boats, but it's been around a long time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there were certainly pogey fishing pre like pre Katrina. They were pogey fishermen, and you know, after Katrina, it was pogey boats across the highway and everything. Yeah, pogey boats have been in Venice and that processing plant for as long as I can remember. Yeah, yeah, they've been around a long time. Yeah, and that's what I wonder too is if they just stopped pogey fishing altogether. What would really happen? Would we have an overpopulation of pogies? Uh, I think, I'm not sure you, I'm not necessarily 
saying they should stop it, but I think they need to protect the the bycatch. They need to understand more if the bycatch is really a problem. Yeah. And I don't think they have enough data to understand of how much. And there's know, a lot of money involved there. Too. Yeah, <laughs> they, I'm I'm not sure we have a good handle on what the bycatch is and how you could restrict when they set nets, where they set nets, you know, what time of year they set nets or where they set nets, yeah. where they could still take a, a reasonable amount of pogey tonnage but not do it in a time where they'd have the chance of a large bycatch that could affect other stocks. I think that's that's a secret there, but that, that requires, you know, a lot of information and data to make intelligent decisions. Yeah. In your time of fishing, how how much do you think the fishery has changed? Do you feel like the fishing's a lot worse than what it used to be, or how do you feel like it's really changed? Well, I thought in the '60s it was really good. Now they had a netting problem, then they had a gill net problem, then, and when they took the gill nets out, it got it got really good. Um, and then I think uh, we were when they regulated redfish regulated you know trout dropped the limits you had really good what were the limits back then what they change them to well early on when i first started fishing there was no limit catch whatever you want yeah you know then you had 50 50 trout 50 redfish wow 50 redfish mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't seem like much of a limit per person right per person that's wild <laughs> and then they dropped it to uh, five, and and then they dropped it, went it from to fifty 20, to five to twenty-five. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, twenty-five trout. And then they did the bull red thing at the same time. Yeah, when they limited the number of bull reds you could take and stuff like that. Yeah. The red fishing stuff was crazy. I mean, when we would go teal hunting, the redfish were. In, and trout were up in the river and so you would fish redfish and trout right you know, after you shoot some teal and stuff like that it was crazy huh? yeah it was crazy <laughs> but so you think it was it was worse with the gill nets and then the the the, the restrictions it got and all that it got it got better the trout fishing deteriorated with the with the gill nets it got better when the gill nets came out of water the redfish deteriorated with the sains mm-hmm. purse sains it got better when they got the purse sains out um, and now it's starting to deteriorate again. Both, uh, and I think now you've got a lot of estuary loss from the hurricanes. And don't discount the BP oil spill. That that's probably significant. Not so much the oil, in my opinion, but the uh, uh, chemicals that were added. The dispersants. Dispersants. Yeah, that seems to be a common theory. Uh, I think. I think it devastated the flounder population. Yeah. Because the flounders are go offshore to spawn, and you got all this dispersants in that laying on the bottom, right yeah. where they're spawning. So I, I can't help but. You've seen the flounder come back for the last couple of years. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. But it's probably almost what? How many years now? Since uh, BP. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Since 2009. So yeah, all that stuff kind of cleared out. And yeah. So you're starting to see some of that come back. Um, I definitely think with the trout population, there's overfishing in some estuaries. Um, probably not as many. There's signs of 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 overfishing in in I think just about all the estuaries to some extent, because 
you were not seeing the, the larger fish, the numbers of large fish. Like the numbers of fish that that we caught in trout watches, 25 and inch and larger, you couldn't you couldn't re replicate that again today. No way. Yeah, there's just not as many big trout. As there's just as not as many, which is an indication that you're having some overfishing. Now, part of it's due to the fact that we have better, bigger boats, better boats, faster boats, better equipment, you know, Smarter better reel, better reels, better electronics, you know, braided lines, all kind of stuff like that, fluorocarbon lines, all, yeah, all everything we're doing, we're doing with a lot of sophistication now. It's a lot better. Yeah, and the other thing is social media and and the communications and people are understanding where to go and stuff like that. Yeah. And so you're harvesting more, or you're harvesting more efficiently. Um, and I think that's why it's so so difficult now. So there has to be some kind of change in the regulation. We can't. I don't. Hopefully we'll do something with the pogey boats at some time, but that's not an answer by itself. Uh, the estuaries have been damaged by hurricanes. We've had a lot of high river. That's not going to go away. Uh, ever since they dammed up the river and, uh, to electrify the country, you're holding up the silt up river, so it's not coming down like it used to. That's not going to change. Uh, because the silt's building up in all the dams upriver, they can't hold the water back as much as they could in the past, so they got to let the water come down the river, so you got to open up the spillways and stuff down here. So the, the, the delta's not getting built up as much as what it used to be? The delta's, the delta's, the, the silt content in the river is a fraction of what it was before the damming of the, of the rivers. Right. And that's all for electric power hmm. for the rest of the country. And then coupled with that, now since the dams have been in place for a long time, the, the, the silt is staying behind the dams, so they don't have the volume right. to hold back the water like they used to. Mm. So, so now they, they have to release more water more frequently. Right. they got to open up the dams. And yeah. At least that's my, my thought process about it. And so that's why we're seeing more. But do you think that uh, fishermen have as big of an impact as these environmental changes that you're talking about? Or do you think it could help with more regulations? Well, I think you can't, you can't change all the environmental impacts and everything else that's going on. You have no control over that. You don't, I mean, you don't think, I mean, they just spent a lot of money building back Breton Island for birds. Yeah, I mean, they didn't. They didn't do a great job of building it back for fish. They built well, it. Well, they didn't do it in the mind of doing it for fish. Right. But, but uh, you see what I'm saying? It's like if you do, if you could build something to make the fishing better. I just think. I just. It, I, I think this is where this is where like I, I try to stand firm on whenever it comes to conservation is that more and better habitat is kind of how all hunting has gotten better. Yeah, but you can't. You don't have enough money, and there's not enough willpower. Yeah, but can't never could. <laughs> well, yeah, but do you realize the delta that you're fishing now was built in the last 600 years? Yeah, that, I mean that that delta is only 600 years old. Yeah, south I've, of. I've had somebody tell me that before. South of Venice. Yeah, 
And do you realize that Britain Sound used to be above, all that was above ground, and that used to be the great St. Bernard Delta, and now that's subsided. And 4,000 years ago, that was that was above above water. Right. Where we, where we fished Britain Sound. Yeah. So that was the amount of land building that the river could do years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have that capability because because of a thirst for electric power, we've taken that, that away from the river. You'll never get it back, no matter how many you know projects you do, how much dredging you do, you'll never be able to get all that, that silt coming down the river again. It's not going to happen. And so you don't have that amount of material to build quickly. So I'm not sure that's going to happen. So I think what's going to happen is that the fishing is just going to see more pressure from, and the only thing you can regulate is the is the, the fishing pressure. The fishing pressure. Yeah. So you don't have much choice, and you need to do something. I mean, our fishery in in Venice and Britain Sound are not are pretty healthy. They're not as as uh, damaged, say, as some of the other estuaries. But some of the other estuaries show really significant overfishing where they're relying on on catching the the first year trout yeah as in a large number in the harvest or they don't catch anything yeah. you know that's why when the the commissioners wanted to recommend uh uh 13 and a half inch there was such an outcry in yeah. some areas of the state where they they did they couldn't couldn't tolerate it. They were going. They were worried about their livelihoods, their businesses, and everything else if they restrict that. And unfortunately, that's that was the fairest way and best way to to do a regulation is to, to ensure more recruitment. Yeah. That the whole whole first year recruitment spawns completely before you start taking it. Right. Tell her it'll actually spawn before you. Yeah, and and the smaller trout don't produce as many eggs, but there's so many more smaller trout that the total volume of eggs they produce is so significant. Right. You know, and then the, the more trout you have that reach maturity, then uh, you got more that will grow older. Yeah. And uh, for all the listeners, the commission is uh, basically they're they just had proposed that we move speckled trout from 25 to 15 with uh two fish that you can keep over 20 inches was it 19 inches? 19 inches 19 inches yeah what, what do you think about that and then the redfish they're they're proposing they well the, the problem the problem with that is i think is that the 19 inch slot that that portion of the reduction harvest is going to come from the estuaries that are not overfished yeah. The estuaries that are overfished don't have very many 19-inch fish to catch. Right. So if you are if you want to continue to take 12-inch fish in the estuary and you say, and and you slap on a, a night, two over 19, you're not catching anything over 19. So that doesn't reduce your harvest by any. Right. But in other parts of the state, like Venice, for example, that's that's terrible. I mean... Some of the, the guides in Venice, like like uh, the Carter brothers and that, they probably catch half their fish are over 19 yeah. inch. Right, they're you all know, big fish. They're yeah. all big fish. And so if you apply that to a, an estuary that's not overfished significantly, 
then that's a very unfair regulation in my mind. Yeah. You know, uh, the, 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 the initial 13 and a half was to protect the, the first year spawning trout. Mm-hmm. And that, since we don't have a problem with recruitment in any estuary according to the what biologists, then that's the fairest, the fair, that would have been the fairest regulation for all the estuaries because everybody would have not taken the smaller trout, more trout would have grown, that would help. Once you start doing the slot, then the, the estuaries that are overfished get no penalty from the slot and the estuaries that are healthier take all the, yeah. the penalty from the slot. <laughs> which becomes a pretty unfair. Yeah, it doesn't uh, seem like yeah, it didn't seem like that would work too well. So that's why at the last meeting there were more people speaking speaking about the slot doesn't work in the east, it doesn't work in Venice, it doesn't work in Britain Sound, it really doesn't work in the punch and train in yeah. in uh Lake Bourne base basins. Yeah, it's a different animal. <laughs> you know, cuz you're not catching that many 12 you know when you take a when you're worried about pinching the tail on an 11 and a half inch trout to make it 12 inches so you can keep it, you know, that's pretty desperation yeah, when you think is. about it. Yeah, that is pretty desperate. And then when you say you want people in Venice to take a, a, a 19 inch slot, that means when I pinch the tail on an 18 inch fish, it's over 19, I throw it back. It's not 19, it's pinching the tail because measurements are. Pretty narrow slot. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely narrow, particularly yeah. if you're catching, uh, you know, fairly mature fish like we do in, in Venice and Britain Sound. Yeah. So, so I think those are, are, are difficult situations. Now, the commission's going back and asking the biologists to look at zones. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the things the zones are going to show, though, is if you have the the 12-inch, 15-fish and slot in, say, the Grand Isle Barataria zone that's has the most fishermen, the most population of guides and everything else, it's going to show that, you know, that's not going to recover very fast. Yeah. Because what they were doing is taking everything and throwing together statewide and saying, okay, the population is going to be recovering, but what the population is going to do is recover in some estuaries faster than other estuaries. And once you go to a zone, you're going to see how fast each zone recovers. Yeah. And so... It's gonna it's gonna shed light on the fact that, you know, staying with the the twelve inch may be a pretty detrimental to to recovery. So you think that they should go? I mean, so you're are you for the zoning stuff? I'm for the zoning because I, obviously I fish you know Britain Sound and and Venice some, and I think it's a very the zone the slide is very unfair to those areas. Right. And, and I fish Lake Pontchartrain. It's right by my house. Right. You know, yeah, I think it's... So you think zones and then, yeah. The thing I don't like about the zones is it just makes it, uh, and a lot of the way that we regulate here in America is we make it so complicated. and we It's not, it's it not really complicated. We've had zones in the state for 17 years. They've had zone in, in Lake, Big Lake. It's been a different regulation, I think, for about 17, 15, at least 15 years, maybe 17. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. They've already done it. They've yeah. already done it, and zones all over Texas, zones all over uh, Florida. Yeah. I mean, of the of the states that touch the Gulf, Florida, uh, Texas, obviously have the greatest 
uh, shorelines, but Louisiana is the second most, and we probably have as diverse a estuary system as any place on the yeah. on the Gulf. Our estuary system, you know, when you look at all the estuaries we have, from Big Lake to Lake Pontchartrain to the river to Britain Sound to Barataria, Vermilion, all that, that those estuaries are, are probably far more complicated than the estuaries in yeah. Texas or or Florida. Yeah. So they they deserve to be regulated with some yeah. degree of uh, you know, zones, zones, you know, and, and stuff like that. I think. I guess I, where where I get that from is that, like I've gone to the Bahamas several several times to go spearfishing and and uh, fishing, and their regulations are pretty simple. You know, you can have sixty pounds of fish, whether they're filleted or whole fish, and and that's it. You know that there's there's no other regulations to it, and. I, I don't know. I just feel like it, it. It's it's frustrating to see like like uh, like mangrove snapper, for instance, where we're removing rigs, rig after rig after rig, and you can keep ten red snapper per person. I mean, uh, ten mangrove snapper per person, but we're losing habitat all the while to doing that. And you can keep the more populated one, the red snapper. You can keep less of those. Right. You know, it's just, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem like we have a really good grasp on the way that we're doing that. Well, but I think the original regulation that was proposed by the Wildlife Fisheries Commission of 13 and a half and 15 was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it was fair to each area because it was, it was regulating the amount of fish that would get to maturity mm-hmm. and it was doing the same in every area we know that recruitment is is not hurting in any area that's not our problem it's after the fish are recruited in, into the the catchable size that it, the problem occurs yeah so when we do that to all zones it, it it applies equally but once you start doing zones and trying to do slots then the slots you got to recognize make a penalty depending on how much the overfishing is in the individual estuary. No. And so that's, I mean, that's the way I, I see it being, and we'll see. How do you feel about the new newly proposed redfish? You think those are good narrower slot and less fish? I mean, that's... Well, yeah, I... <laughs> they went from five that, to three and then from... They moved the slot up to 18 Yeah, well, what, what they were doing is trying to get to, uh, they, were, they, were, they were trying to get to a faster recovery. Mm-hmm. And so they narrowed the slot. I'm not sure it would not have been better to have the slot start with a larger fish. Yeah, big, make it bigger. Yeah, and go to 27. Yeah. But you know they they were they came up with something and then the the guides and the people there the stakeholders that spoke at the, the commission meeting I was there you know they were concerned about how fast the recovery was going to be and they wanted something that was going to recover faster so the proposal they came up with was a faster recovery yeah how how accurate do you think that their stock assessments are um, the stock assessments are satisfactory based on what everybody else does. But 
all you have to do is look at Red Snapper. And they were doing stock assessments for Red Snapper for decades. And they did a major study and demonstrated that they missed a, what, a third of the Snapper population. Yeah, it, yeah, it could be three times as many out there right. with the article. But, but the one thing that I will tell you about the stock assessments, you can, you can do all the stock assessments you want. But if you keep catching in, a, in an estuary, smaller and smaller trout, that means you're overfishing. Yeah. As soon as you you lose the ability to catch larger fish in your estuary, your estuary, no matter how many assessments you're doing. I agree. That's, I agree with that. That's yeah. a pretty good indication that your estuary is overfished. Yeah. They say a good, uh, a good example of a, a healthy population of fish is when you're, you're catching all different classes of fish. That's right. All age groups. All age groups. Yeah. yeah. When when you catch all age groups of fish, mm-hmm. then you're absolutely there's absolutely no overfishing. Right. And even in the Venice area, I don't think it's it's severely overfished, but there is some overfishing because we we don't catch the number of large trout like we used to. Yeah. You would hear some people, you hear it from time to time in Louisiana, they'll say that uh they don't think that you can overfish this place with a rod and reel. Would you agree? Or, or well, Gerald Horse said that before pre-Katrina. Mm-hmm. And that might have been true pre-Katrina. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the, the other thing is, uh, what's your definition of overfishing? Because right, right now the biologists are saying that the, the recruitment is fine everywhere. We're recruiting smaller fish, okay? The problem is if you don't have older fish in the in the biomass, if you have anything like a, a freeze or something and you're counting on all small fish, the freeze will wipe out all the small fish for sure. Right. But if you have some older fish, bigger fish, that typically uh, stay in deeper water and stuff that like that, sense, they yeah. can survive the freeze. So your, your problem, even though you might have adequate re- recruitment if you're not catching if if you don't have larger fish in the population mm-hmm. significant numbers then you don't have the ability to withstand mother nature if you have a major freeze or something yeah. I mean all you gotta do is look at Texas Texas has fairly large fish in their population mm-hmm. and even though they had significant fish kills they recovered pretty quick within three years they're putting the limits back up Right, because they recovered, yeah. They recovered faster, and, and that's probably because they had a pretty good distribution of fish in different age groups. Right. And the larger fish survives, more of the larger fish survive the freeze. But if you have if you have just small fish, it's gonna, that could be very difficult. Yeah. Why, why do you think that if, if somebody wants to catch a, a tr- uh, like a true 10, 11-pound speckled trout, you know, people will say go to Texas. Why do you think that is? Salt water. Salt salinity. Yeah. As well, yeah. Fall, Florida the same way. Yeah. We, we have more brackish. We produce more fish. Uh, and maybe we do have 12-pounders, but they might be out there by the snapper rigs, and the snapper are too aggressive. I mean, yeah. I remember in the 90s catching very large trout in the, in the main past 40 rigs. Mm-hmm. No. You know, and you go to some of those rigs now, all you're going to catch a snapper in that. Yeah. But 
I mean, we. Why do you think they moved? Maybe they didn't move. Maybe they're there, but they just have other. You know, I don't know. No. You know, I. But uh, I don't understand that. But Texas and Florida certainly have high salinities, and I think that allows the fish to grow. But I don't think it. I don't think it fosters the ability to carry as many fish. Right. You know, the the brackish water and and all the the shrimp and feed. And, you know, food sources in the in the estuaries that we have allow us to have way more fish. Right. But what about, like, a, if you wanted to catch the world record, redfish is like North Carolina seems to, seems to be the spot to catch giant redfish. Yeah. Is it a salinity thing as well? No, I'm not sure what that might be. Uh, Something I think about a lot, just because... The bigger redfish have always been on the Atlantic, for whatever reason. Yeah. And maybe it's just uh, a genetic mutation there that they grow bigger i have no idea yeah but from See, from I a kid from a kid you know the uh the carolinas and that have always produced the you know the bigger bull reds the bigger bull reds yeah but but we've produced probably the most bull reds right yeah you know that's something i think about a lot because i wonder if the the population has to produce a bigger fish to be able to sustain a smaller population of fish like, you see what I'm saying? Like, if we're if we need more fish at a smaller size, like the species has a way of regulating itself like that. Well, I, it's hard to really say. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say, but it, it, you know, no. it, it. Some areas just have different conditions that, yeah, maybe foster the fish to grow differently. Yeah, they could be slightly genetic differences. We haven't. I don't think anybody's proved that though. Yeah, yeah. What is um? What's your biggest speckled trout? I see it up over here on the wall. Yeah, it was right at, right under ten pounds. Right under ten pounds. Yeah. Wow. Where'd you catch that fish at? That was in uh, Florida. Um, on the on the east coast. Really. That's yeah, cool. Indian River area. I've lot, never been lot. there. Is it pretty? Yeah, it's it's real pretty. Uh, you know. That that fish was probably caught just a few miles from where we launched the boat. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Live croaker. That's and cool. I'd like to say I was a really skilled fisherman to catch that, but, you know, it was the first cast in the morning. <laughs> first cast. Huh? First cast, set the hook, and it was done. <laughs> Did you catch much else that day? Yeah, we caught some, some eight-pounders and... I think we had a couple of fives and stuff wow. like that. We caught, Sounds like a pretty epic day. But they were they were all big fish. We caught all pretty big fish. We were fishing with live croaker, wow. targeting big fish. Caught a few uh, snook the same day. We fished for a couple of days. Well, is there any other um, stories you might want to share with us? Hmm. You got a lot, I know. Oh, I, I don't know. I... I guess the the my time fishing I enjoyed bringing my son to fish with me. He's now an avid fisherman, and now I have an opportunity to fish with my grandson. And that's gotta be cool. It's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I fish with Graydon, and uh, we fish a lot of the tournaments. We just fished uh, Swole Fest, and we're getting ready to fish uh, uh, Pas this week. Oh, nice! I'll be down there. Yeah, we, uh, we like to. We 
fished those tournaments through the years, and he's a real good trout fisherman. I'm real proud of him. How yeah. old is your grandson? He's 21. Oh, nice. Just made 21. Yeah. So he knows the deal. <laughs> but he's been uh, he's been fishing since he was a kid. And my other grandson likes to fish, but not has that same passion as Graydon. Grisham. Right, right. Grisham's not as as uh, passionate as his older brother, but they're both pretty good fishermen. No. Yeah. Are you fit? Do you fit? Are you going to fish it with like your son and your grandson? Yeah, the three of us will fish. That's awesome. That doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, huh? it's, it's three generations. We like that. That's that, that's probably the most rewarding thing in fishing is being able to pass it down from one generation to the other. No. And the, to have the your your son or daughter like to fish and enjoy the fishing and pass it down to their yeah. child. That's pretty pretty unique pretty yeah. fun yeah I, was, I found that it's like a passion that it can last a lifetime you know like a lot of people get in these team sports and stuff and you kind of you have to let it go at some point yeah you can yeah. fish until you can't hardly fish anymore <laughs> <laughs> <Can't>, you, <laughs> you know, fishing and hunting it stays and there's yeah. a, the eating it aspect that yeah. brings everybody together I mean, it's yeah. really amazing yeah it's it's been a lot of fun hunting the same way uh, we all like to duck hunt and that it's been a lot of fun doing that through the years mm-hmm. uh, we were able to uh, take out, out well my son was able to take his sons and, and his daughter uh, duck hunting real close by here uh, at Bayou Sauvage there was a youth type hunting until you're like 15 or 16 so they would go hunt in that area and uh the hunting was really good off of lake Bourne. yeah what do you what would you say is like because i have a i don't know if you know but i have a, a son on the way he's doing in december and um what's the best way to like try and instill that passion in, in the next generation because like you know you look around and some people it's hard to pass it down you know for for certain people but what would you say is like a i think i I think you have to take it slow. Um, you you have to make the early trips relatively easy and short. Mm-hmm. Kids want, they don't care whether they catch a catfish or a redfish or a trout. It doesn't matter. As long mm-hmm. as they're catching something, something's pulling a pole, that's... Doesn't matter, yeah. Doesn't matter. Um, to take them and have early success, so to try to plan the first trip when you know they're going to catch them catch something not go very far mm-hmm. don't worry about catching something that big anything works uh and just bring it along gradually yeah you know i think that's important um my son lives close by here and uh, the, the, the subdivision he lives in has a golf course and there's ponds around the golf course so my grandson just wore the bass out catching <laughs> in the in the ponds around the golf course you know and he learned to cast real well and work a bait and yeah he got very proficient at that yeah and so that's you know that's important i think if you try to force them and take them on real hard trips early on when they're young and that it, it gives them a, a bad i guess pick. that's what I, <laughs> it's funny you say that because that's how i was brought in. my dad did sun up to sundown trips you know our whole life and that was it but we, I think we always had like the we dove a lot. We did a lot of diving and stuff, yeah. and it wasn't like it seemed like if the fish weren't biting, we'd get in the water, and that would be you know cool. Well, that was the, different. That, <laughs> that might, that might be different. different. Yeah, yeah, it's different. Yeah, I be. see what you're saying though. If you go out 
and you're trying to catch fish and you're just not getting a bite to a kid. It's I mean, better to go home. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your powder dry for the next trip. Yeah. And I have to tell myself that sometimes because, like, I'll get, you know, as a charter captain, I'll, you know, that's, that's like the worst thing is when you get some kids on the boat and you start having a tough morning because it, it doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> just hard. The kids, the kids lose interest and stuff like that. Yeah. Particularly if now once the they they have the passion, you know, once that's developed in them, then that's different. Yeah, then they'll stay longer. Oh yeah, yeah. when I fish with Graydon now, we'll fish this week. You know, we'll fish. We'll be out early and <laughs> late. Come back late. Yeah. Yeah, every day. You know, they'll be pretty passionate. Yeah. But it takes a few years before they get to that skill level and and. Uh, understand it takes time yeah and and not every kid's going to want to do that you know you you know if you if your son or daughter uh is passionate about becomes passionate about fishing that's that's kind of a blessing but they might not yeah they just might not yeah you know they might not like it so you know they might like something else so yeah so don't force them you know they'll have (laughs) to try not to (laughs) they'll have to uh you know make that decision on their own yeah, for sure. But if you can give them the opportunity, that's all that, that matters, I think. Yeah, give them the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything you'd like to share, talk about? Yeah, uh, we talked about a lot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think we the state has to do something, though, for the regulations. We have to, we have to preserve as much of this resource, this fishing resource for the next generations as possible. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think moving, doing it better. I think, I, th- I personally think that, I, and you probably heard me talk at the, uh, at the commission and I, I was, anybody that listened to me, I was God awful. I've never had to speak in front of a lot of people like that. I was extremely nervous. Um, but I, I, you know, I tried to take the, as a moment that we need, I, I just, it's just really a burning. I, th- I think it's because my dad, spent so much time trying to develop habitat um, along the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I thought it would be a time that we could try to agree that if we could get more habitat, we can make this fishery better than it ever has been. And a big part of, I mean, I, you know, I still think that we can, I don't think it'll ever leave me. I think that that's something that we have to come together as fishermen and agree on. I mean, like we put men on the moon, we've done a lot we've built oil rigs in the gulf of mexico if you could have that same source of motivation to build habitat i really do think we could make more fish than what we currently have and i don't know if anybody could ever convince me otherwise but i do agree with you that you know more regulations could help us um but at the same time i think that more habitat would be better than more regulations and if you look at every facet of conservation that's been proven time and time again yeah, I, I think it might be better to have hatcheries and and add to the stock than. But you don't think more habitat makes more fish? Well, I'm not sure you can make more habitat. That's my problem is habitat for one type of fish, like putting structure on the bottom for reef fish, like snapper and that. That type of habitat works, but. How are you going to make habitat? How are you going to create a, a marsh-type habitat? They just did it in Mississippi. There's an island called Round Island that's out in um, the Mississippi Sound that's just off the coast of Pasadena. Yeah, but they're 
Yeah. And they built a whole estuary. They literally did it. Yeah, they built, they they put, you know. They built, they grasses, built an island they with built, a cove and yeah, they, made, they put grasses, grasses in Grasses in it and they cultivated the grasses. Yeah. yeah, you can do stuff like that. You know, that kind of estuary, but. That makes more fish. I understand that, but look at the volume of the Louisiana estuary. Just look at the Louisiana marsh. You could you could build. You just got to scale up. Yeah. That's all it takes is to scale up. Yeah, but scale up is one. Thing. I mean, Miss, just, I just, I mean the, the scale the scale of Mississippi's coastline is relatively small. Yeah. And so yeah, that makes a that makes a difference in that estuary because they're they're adding something that's percentage wise significant. But in Louisiana's estuaries, I mean, the amount of the amount of effort it would take to add significantly would be, I think, very difficult. I mean, they, I don't know. It, it, again, they did it to Breton Island. They did it in the, in the mind's sake of, of birds. And so you, you, you actually destroyed, destroyed speckled trout habitat while trying to make habitat for birds. But how much, how, how, how many reefs have been made in, with speckled trout in mind? Have we even attempted it? We haven't. Probably not. We haven't. <laughs> but I mean, just take, just take the uh, the Britain Island. I think it was great that they they restored Britain Island somewhat, but and that was good. But I think they would have maybe did better if they restored Gosha. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Do you something know, like that. If Restore they would have did the, if they would have did the same effort on Gosha, that probably would have had more impact on the fishery. That the problem what will be in in the evaluation of that is it probably wouldn't help the birds as much as building up building Britain higher no. has more advantage for the birds than building Goshen up out of the water. Yeah. But would have more of an effect on on the the fish population maybe. Yeah. And I think the Chandelier Islands are being more used by the public for fishing than bird watching personally. I mean, I don't know how many bird watchers you've seen out there, but no. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we shouldn't have any habitat for the birds, but I just think the the bird the bird I don't know how they get so much funding. We get very little funding for building more habitat for our marshes and, and estuaries. Like maybe none. But for birds, they get millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to do that, and I just think if we had, if we if we could bring fishermen together and um, people that, I mean, it, I mean the Carter said it on the podcast. I mean they they're already digging that river up every day. There's dredge there right now, digging away, you know, and they'll fill in another pond. That's what they keep doing with it is filling in ponds. They're not making estuary type things with it i just think it's a it's a motivation and a and a an allocation of money thing that's that's just i mean it's hard to change my mind with that <laughs> well that you'll need to get a lot of powerful politicians on your side to do anything with that that's why you start small you start talking and having conversations with people like you <laughs> yeah. and if you can change like somebody's mind one at a time and slowly people will start changing their mind and they see that. And I, and I just, I feel like so many fishermen have it in their mind that fishing used to be good and it's no longer as good as what it was. And we're never going to get it back the way that it used to be. And I just, I just disagree. The environment's changed over hundreds of thousands of years. It's gotten better and it's gotten worse over time. And how do we make it better? How do we make the environment work for us? How do we, 
evolve with it. And that's, I mean, that's just, you know. Yeah, but, but in the estuaries that are, or were developed by the flooding of the river and the silt in the river and stuff like that, trying to develop those estuaries now, you, you got one or both hands tied behind your back because you just don't have the volume of silt. And yeah, there's probably better ways to dispose of dredge materials than just dumping it in a pond. You know, there, there could be a lot smarter ways of doing that. But in the scale of things, the grand scale, the volume is just not there. Now, maybe we can save a few ponds from being covered up with dredge material, and that might be positive in the long run. But I'm not sure you're going to have much effect on building significant amount. And, the, and then you're saying that the silt coming down the river can never be changed because of... Stamped up. It's just dammed up. And they dam- can't change the dams. Maybe maybe they'll come to the realization that the dam might get to a point where they have to come up with something else. And maybe that'll change. I don't know. No. But right now, you know, you're blocking, the, you're holding the silt back from coming down river. And so... There's there's no way to build the land like the river used to. No. You know if if I you, agree with that, that's definitely a big hurdle for sure. There's no doubt. If if you could if you could have the silt volume come down the silt volume come down the river, you probably could build it back pretty quick with some smart ways of doing it. No. I don't know. I guess I I look around the world and you see, I mean, China has literally built more land in the middle of the ocean. They literally have dredged and built land in the middle of the ocean. And they've done, you know, different things like yeah, that. Dubai, that. Dubai, Dubai has, has done that, yes. I mean, it's, I just feel like we're in America. <laughs> you know, like this is where innovation is, has happened time and time And again. we also have 50 states and, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure very many other of the 49 states would want to spend a lot of money building land in Louisiana. No. No, you're right. You know. It's definitely a, it's an issue and it's a it's a hurdle, but I think if we you know, we we really want to make this fishery better, that's that's the solution to me. I think re- more regulations is in turn going to drive more people away from fishing and we'll have less people that think like me and less people that want to actually change laws and allocate more money to making cuz like I mean that's I mean that's the basis for conservation in Africa. How they, you know, that's how they are able to sustain elephant hunting and yeah. giraffe hunting and everything. You know, they have to have money and people that want to go do it, or all those animals would be gone. Right. So yeah. it costs a lot to shoot an elephant. <laughs> it does. It costs a whole lot. I personally would never want to go do it, but it's a good thing that there's people that want to go do it. Yeah. So, but look, Rudy, uh, we could talk about this all day long. I'm oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> sure we could but um i really appreciate you inviting me in your home and um let me talk with you and uh i really appreciate it and uh maybe i'll see you down in venice this weekend yeah yeah hopefully if we have some fish away we'll go down to venice yeah for sure yeah. all right man all right well, cool thank you thank you, thank you.